chapter 2 of Luke, uh, verses 5 to 25. All right, chapter 1, verse 5 to 25. There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, his wife Elizabeth, who was also descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth had not been able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of the incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along her in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have not been sent to speak I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile the people were waiting for Zechariah, and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant for five months, remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Question this morning. What's in a name? You have probably, at one time or another, out of curiosity, looked up your name online to try to figure out what it means. Now, my name is a little bit unique in that it has two D's on it. And I looked up Ted with two D's, and I actually found no meaning. (laughs) It's not Theodore, so I couldn't go there. However, I did find that since 1880 till the present, there have only been 1,000 people that have had Ted with two Ds. That's kind of pretty cool. On the other hand, my wife's name, Nancy, named, excuse me, in that same period of time, 1880 to the present, there have been over 1 million people with that name. But the meaning of the name Nancy is special. It means child of grace. Interestingly, our second daughter, Mariel, named her first daughter Grace. And then because they liked the name, they named their second daughter Hannah because they thought it was, sounded good. It was biblical. And sometime after she was born, I, I looked up. I wonder what the name Hannah means. What does it mean? Grace. 
So she's got two daughters by the name of Grace. Then our son was upset that our daughter chose Grace, and so he ended up naming their first daughter Esther Grace. So there's a lot of grace flowing through our family, which I appreciate. To us, the idea of knowing what our name means is more of a novelty than a necessity. In North American culture, we find ourselves naming our children uh, with names that sound good to us. Maybe some name we heard, that, oh, I like that, or we, how does that go with a middle name, and how does that sound with a last name, how, how many syllables uh, should it be to, to make it sound right. Sometimes we name our children after a family member that we have appreciated to honor them. Sometimes we reject a name because we knew somebody with that name, we don't like them. But in the Old and New Testament, we find a very different culture. In the Jewish culture, names were very important. A, main, a name carried more than their identity. It was something, uh, gave something about who you were, or what God was like, or perhaps what they were hoping, how you, they would hope you would turn out, what God might want in your life, how you were expected to live. In Scripture, we even see that God changes names of a few characters. In the Old Testament, Abram's name was changed to Abraham. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So this morning we asked the question, what is in a name? Now every year in December, we open our Bibles and look at the Christmas story, which is a good thing, particularly of Mary and Joseph and the birth of Jesus. But there's a story which is part of the larger context of the Christmas story, which Luke read uh, for us this morning, that we often skip over or we read through fairly quickly because we want to get to the main point, right? We want to get to the real story, the real birth of Jesus. And that's the story of the appearance of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah and his promise that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son and they would call his name John. This morning I want to look at this story in light of the meaning of the names that God places on each one of these characters. And I think we're going to see in this passage that God is faithful to do what He has prophesied, what He has promised, no matter what the odds. And we start with Zechariah. Zechariah's name means God will remember. This is a special moment in Zechariah's life, this moment here in the story that we read, a moment of a lifetime. See, within the temple gates, the priests were already busy with their tasks of preparing the temple for worship, and, and among them was this older priest, a quiet and humble man who had served many years as a priest. He was certainly one of the oldest ones still serving in the temple of that time, and his lineage coming from the priestly tribe of Aaron, going back to the tribe way back in the Old Testament. And Luke tells us that Zechariah belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Now, Abijah was a division within the tribe of Aaron. And on top of that, Luke says his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So they both came from this priestly tribe. The priestly tribe, they didn't have fields, they didn't have belongings. Their responsibility was a temple. Their responsibility was a worship. Now why is this important that they were from this tribe? Because they, they, they were chosen among those tribes. They were called the priestly tribe. And only men from that tribe of Aaron could perform priestly duties in God's temple. 
I think if you were to see him that day, I think you would notice that he was, there was a little bit of excitement going on. Maybe there's a glint in his eye, a little smile on his, on his mouth, because he had been chosen by the casting of lots for the great honor responsibility to go into the holy place and to burn the incense on the altar. In all of his years as a priest, that honor had never fallen to him. And he may have given up hope that would ever fall to him. There was a lot of priests that were active. You see, to be chosen to burn the incense was basically a once-in-a-lifetime privilege for a priest. The act was simple in and of itself. You just had to enter the holy place alone, and, and the, the, the coals were already going. You spread the incense and allowed the incense to burn and the aroma to rise. But this was a big deal for him. And Luke says, When the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. You see, all the people outside weren't allowed to enter into the holy place. They didn't yet have access to God. That only came when Christ was crucified. So they prayed outside the holy place. And one priest... In this case, Zechariah was chosen to go in and light the incense. And in so doing, he was representing all the prayers of all the people that were praying outside. He was representing those prayers or presenting them to God. Talk about pressure. It's a simple thing, but there is a lot of pressure on him. Was he worthy? Was he cleansed enough himself? A lot of these questions may have been going on. I mean, he was, he was just outside so close to the Holy of Holies. You don't go in the Holy Holies. That's where the ark is. That's where God's presence uh, was. Would the incense he lit be acceptable in the eyes of God? And I wonder if the words of Psalm 19, verse 14, didn't go through his mind. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He was to offer the prayer before the altar and then withdraw as quickly as possible. And then as he came out of the holy place, he would pause on his steps to offer the benediction from the time of Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. To some, this whole process may have felt all like an exercise in futility. Was God even there? Did he really care? Does all this ritual stuff really even matter? I mean, for goodness sake, God's been silent for 400 years. Ever since the last words of God given by Malachi in the Old Testament, God had been silent. Was he there? Where was he? Where was the Messiah that he had promised all of those years and uh, throughout the Old Testament? But I don't think Zechariah had given up hope. For all his name meant, God will remember. And so on that day, with a multitude of faithful Israelites gathered outside the holy place, Zechariah humbly slipped through, into the ent- uh, through the entry and into the holy place, dimly lit by candlelight. The incense was then burned on the altar as a symbol of Israel's prayers accepted by God. And for a moment there, Zechariah was all alone. I wonder if he paused a moment just to burn that scene into his memory. Probably never going to happen again in his lifetime. A moment of blessing in a lifetime of service. A moment that would soon be done. 
So alone, Zechariah approached the altar. Alone, he spread the incense over the coals. And alone, he waited as, as they kindled on the coals and, and the smoke started to rise and the, and the aroma started to rise. And as the smoke started to ascend, the people outside were prostrate praying. Oh, Zechariah prayed in silence. I wonder if he prayed, God, remember. God, remember your people. God, remember your promise. And as Zechariah opened his eyes, he was aware he wasn't alone. With trembling fear, he lifted his eyes to a figure standing to the right of the altar of incense. No man was supposed to be in that place except him, and this certainly was no man. Verse 11, it says, There an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Before the elderly priest stood the angel Gabriel. Gabriel, whose name means mighty one of God. You know, the last time Gabriel stood before a man was way back... The Old Testament in the time of Daniel, when he stood before Daniel, about 600 years earlier. God, uh, Gabriel had been sent to reveal to Daniel the mystery of God's timing for the arrival of the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? Seventy sevens are declared for your people, Daniel. First seven sevens and 62 more sevens until the anointed one will be cut off. There were those in Israel who could do the math. Those who must have known that the coming of the Messiah was drawing near because when, when the sevens were calculated in years, the total was 483 years from the time the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem until the time that the anointed one would be cut off. Those who knew the prophecy must have known that this promised one, the Messiah, would have to be born in the coming generation in order for that uh, prophecy to be fulfilled it was the same with Zechariah as it was with Daniel, and then later on again with Mary. Gabriel had come, the mighty one of God, to deliver a message about the Messiah, but before he could actually deliver the message, he had to calm their fears. Every one of them was terrified. With Daniel, Gabriel had to actually pick him up off the ground. And encourage him to have strength because he had basically, as he was identified, he had fainted in fear. Zechariah must have gone white with fear because the first words, first words that Gabriel says, do not fear. Do not fear. In understanding the name Gabriel, we can well understand how terrifying it must have been to stand in front of him face to face. No, it's interesting, we've never been given a description of his appearance, but based on a few descriptions of God's angels, he must have been amazing to behold. I wish he had gotten a sketch pad and kind of sketched out what, what he may have seen. Part of the shock of Zechariah that he was standing in the was that, that he was standing in the presence of an angel was that though he believed the promise of his own name, God will remember. I am not sure if he actually expected it. Because the last words of God were recorded 400 years ago by the prophet Malachi. So though he hoped, 
don't know if he never ever really expected to hear from God. But even stranger than that was a reason for his visit. The angel had come to inform him that his prayer had been heard and that his wife would now bear him a son to whom the name John would be given. And in verse 13, it says, The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. His prayer has been heard. Which prayer? The prayer that he may have just prayed that God would remember his promise? Or the prayer he had perhaps stopped praying years ago that God might bless him with a son? Then Gabriel makes it clear that the answer is to both prayers, as he will definitely have a son in his old age, and that son will be the immediate forerunner of the promised Messiah. Your prayer has been heard, Gabriel says. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will receive because Rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What an amazing promise. Zechariah, he was so excited that he ran out of the temple and ran home to tell his wife Elizabeth. No, that's not what happened. He didn't do that. And whether it was from fear or doubt, Zechariah dared... (laughs) to challenge Gabriel with a question. Verse 18, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. I wonder, as it is oftentimes with us, as soon as those words slip out of your mouth, I wonder if he wanted to take them back. I wonder if as soon as he said it, if he, he remembered what happened to Abraham and Sarah when Sarah laughed at the preposterous promise that the angel of the Lord had given them having a, to have a child in their old age. You know, I was, when I was in high school, my dad gave me this little cup coaster to put on my desk, which said, be sure brain is engaged before putting mouth in gear. Always try to remember that. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years, Zechariah said. And in today's vernacular, Gabriel said, Are you kidding me right now? The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Gabriel's response reveals to us again the importance of this message because it's not just another messenger, another one of the many myriads of angels to come and bear these tidings. This is Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And as a sign to Zechariah and all around him of the truth of the promise, He says, and now you will be silent. Would that we would all sometimes be silent before we are silenced. (laughs) 
because of something we have inadvertently said. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. And he struck him dumb for the next nine months. What's the application of that? Don't doubt God's word. Really pretty simple. Don't doubt God. And with that, Zechariah finds himself alone again in the holy temple. The, the angel disappears. And as he steps out into the light of the temple courts, he encounters a lot of concerned people because he'd been there in there a whole lot longer than it took to just light, uh, throw some incense on, on the coals. Wondering why he had taken so long. The other priests must have stood for a, for a long time, for a, or at least for a moment, looking at him, waiting for that blessing. Remember, he was supposed to give that blessing of Aaron to everybody. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The words didn't come out. Instead, we are told they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but uh, remained unable to speak. And when the week of his temple service was completed... Zechariah left silently to go on home, many miles away in the hills of Judea. It says when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So this brings us to the next character, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth which means oath of God or promise of God. I think the only one who would be more shocked by this promise Zechariah had received must have been Elizabeth. She must have started life with high hopes like all the young women of the time. She too was a descendant of Aaron from the priestly, priestly line, and she had married a priest and their union was said to have, uh, by tradition, to have double blessing. But things just didn't seem to turn out that way. In fact, most every dream she had dreamed had by this time kind of withered and died. Her name means oath of God, which is understood to mean that God is absolutely reliable. His oath is his bond. He doesn't lie. He doesn't break promises. And you know, that name must have often seemed to be a bitter joke, perhaps, to Elizabeth. Because here, rather than being blessed, she seemed to have received the double curse of being barren, of not being able to have a child. A double curse in those days because it was believed that, number one, children were a sign of God's blessing. And so to be without children was obviously a sign of God's displeasure or some hidden sin in your life. Secondly, a, cur a curse because it automatically disqualified the parents from the possibility of being part of the bloodline of the promised Messiah. The desire of every Jewish woman was to be the mother of or at least be in the line of the Messiah who would restore their nation and fulfill the promise of God. For years, Zechariah and Elizabeth must have prayed that God remove this shame and grant them a son, but I'm sure those prayers had stopped when she had passed the age of childbearing, and the two had no doubt resigned, them to that, resigned themselves to a lifetime of loneliness. 
But what would have embittered many, what would have discouraged many, but what could have caused them to doubt God at this time? I don't think it corrupted Elizabeth. Why do I say that? Because in verse 6 we are told very clearly, both of them, quote, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Despite the fact that they didn't understand what God was doing or perhaps what God wasn't doing, they continued to trust God unwaveringly. Zachariah and Elizabeth didn't let the whispers and questions of their neighbors get to them. They knew who it was that they were meant to please, and that was the Lord and Him alone. We're told that they were blameless in the sight of God. It didn't mean that they were without sin but rather just as Abraham's faith, because he believed that God would fulfill his promise, was reckoned to him as righteousness, so Zechariah and Elizabeth were accepted in God's sight as righteous based on their faith in what he had not yet accomplished. Do you remember what the name Zechariah means? God will remember. Elizabeth's name means oath of God or God's oath, God's promise. Now watch this. You put their names together, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and what do you get? God will remember his oath. God will remember his promise. Coincidence? No. Words have meaning. According to verses 23 to 25, Elizabeth became pregnant after Zechariah's silent return home, and then she secluded herself for a period of five months. Well, I can just imagine that she spent a lot of her time pondering the wonder of what had happened to her. Her name, Elizabeth, God's oath. That name came through in its fullest meaning, the oath of God, the absolute reliable one who always keeps his promises. We again see in Scripture that God proves Himself faithful even in the impossible, or could we say especially in the, in, the, in the impossible, because that's when we're not expecting it anymore. Nine months go by, and we pick up the story in verse 57. When it's time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord, uh, excuse me, that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. You know, in the times of the, the early uh, New Testament, it was not uncommon for neighbors to gather at a, an occasion like this, to celebrate, to share in the joy. They wanted to be a part of this. But I would think that the crowd might have been just a little bit bigger because this was a miracle child. This should never have happened, and they wanted to particularly share in that joy. And apparently, the family had already gotten together and decided, talk, without talking to Zechariah and Elizabeth, that his name should be Zechariah. You know how relatives are sometimes. Verse 60, but his mother spoke and says, no, he is to be called John. I think the people were shocked. Really? They all assumed that the name Zechariah would be given to the child so that he might model his life after his father and honor his father and serve as, as a priest following his father. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name, the name John. Surely she wouldn't choose to dishonor her elderly husband. 
by giving a, the child a different name. Why the name John? They were incredulous. And in confusion, they then, they then turned to Zechariah, and it says in 60, uh, verse 62, then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, this is how surprised they were, to everyone's astonishment he wrote, his name is John. And it's interesting that he didn't say his name should be John, or, you know, we'd like to call him John. He said, his name is John. It was a name given to him by the command of God through the angel Gabriel. And at that moment, verse 64 says, immediately his mouth was open, his tongue set free, and he began speaking and praising God. So what's in that name? Why is that significant? There must be some reason that God chose the name John rather than allowing the parents to name their child. Well, the name John means God is a gracious giver. Well, that makes sense. I mean, God was being gracious to this elderly couple, right? Giving them a son after all these years of Elizabeth being barren, no children. But to really understand the fullness of his name and why God really chose that name, we need to go back just for a second to to the words of Gabriel in verse 14. Listen to what he says. He, talking about John, he will be a joy and delight to you. Okay, that's personal. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You see, John was much more than a gracious gift to an elderly couple John was a gracious gift from God Almighty to His chosen people who had turned away from Him and who deserved death. He came proclaiming the coming of the Lord. Remember in Colossians, Paul told us that that proclaiming means admonishing and teaching, warning and sharing the good news. that, That was John, strong, powerful, bold preacher, And like Paul, he had been given a message to proclaim, and he proclaimed it without fear. You remember he called out the Pharisees as a brood of vipers, telling them that by his words he was was poisoning all the people of Israel that were listening to them. He called out King Herod, for goodness sake, for divorcing his wife and then unlawfully marrying his brother's wife. He had one message for everybody, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. We don't hear a lot of messages about John. It's kind of like we don't know what to do with him. He's kind of a weird character. Something unnerving about him, something archaic, something Old Testament-ish, if that's a word, about him. But there's a reason for that. He's been known or called the last of the Old Testament prophets He's a bridge between the old and the new. Listen to the final words of God in the Old Testament. Before the 400 years of science, the last two verses in Malachi, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children. Sound familiar? That's exactly what Gabriel was saying about John. 
and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. See, when God broke his silence after almost 400 years, it's through Gabriel that he speaks to an old priest serving in the temple. And the message he delivers is that you will have a son who will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Old Testament prophet power. It was an Old Testament prophet who was needed to come and graciously turn the people of Israel back to God to prepare the way for the promised one, for the Messiah. And the responsibility then fell upon John to announce, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus would later say of him, No greater prophet has ever lived. Via John, as his name indicates, God was graciously giving another opportunity to his chosen people. He loved his people dearly. Those who had rebelled against him, turned away from him to repent and turn back to him. John, God is a gracious giver, giving them another chance. Our world today looks at the message of John the Baptist and resists it. They don't recognize the grace of God found in repentance. They only see what they perceive to be the loss of freedom. John came to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, to restore right family relationships, father, mother, children, family. Our world today asks us to make no comment as to what is right family relationship. In fact, there are strong movements and organizations in our society today who have as their purpose to destroy the nuclear family, to destroy God's plan for family. John comes to turn the disobedient back to the way of righteousness, but the world today asks us to make no comment about right and wrong. To avoid judging a person based on how they live or what they do, and the church often complies. One day God will judge each one based on the decisions we have made in this lifetime. You see, it is a gracious gift of God. It was a gracious gift of God to send a fiery prophet as both a warning and a sign. God is indeed gracious. As we close this morning, let's remember that we serve a God who remembers a God who is mighty, a God who is faithful, keeps his promises, and a God who is gracious. We also remember that a day is coming when an angel once again will appear to herald the coming of the Messiah. But this time the coming will be imminent and immediate. There will be no more grace period. Scripture tells us that the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God, uh, trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive remain will be caught up in the clouds to be with the Lord forever. Are we ready to go? There are so many around us, folks, that are not. This is a grace period. John the Baptist has already come and gone, but his message has not. His message still remains. People need to prepare to meet the Lord because God remembers. He will not forget what he has promised. 
God is mighty and His next coming will be swift and will be mighty. God is faithful to His Word. It does not change. And God is gracious because a time we are living in now is actually a period of grace before the final judgment. Are we prepared to meet Him and have we been about our Father's business? In a moment, we're going to sing, Your grace is enough. And as we sing that, listen to the chorus. Remember your people. Remember your children. Remember your promise, O God. The same same prayer that old Zechariah prayed. And then it says, Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough for me. God always remembers. Father, this morning we pray that as we walk in your steps that we would be aware of you <laughs> and all that entails you are almighty you are omniscient you know everything you are omnipresent you are everywhere you are omnipotent all powerful And we serve a living God. We serve a mighty God. And Father, I pray that our lives, as we step out of the service this morning, that our lives will, we will see our lives differently, that we need to be about your business. You have called us to share with people about your faithfulness and about your grace and about your love and what you did for us by sending your son, Jesus Christ, that we celebrate during this Christmas time. Father, I pray that you would burden our hearts to share with those that you are placing in our paths. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.